Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the 14th sermon in our sermon series on the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And our text this evening is the entire chapter 9, verses 1 through 21, that are found on page 1033 in your pew Bible. Now we are in the midst of the visions set out at the breaking of the seventh seal. Seven angels with trumpets stand ready to sound. But we saw, instead, a silence confronted us. It is the expected response of the Lord's advent to judge. The hard-hearted enemies of God experience the silence of dread. But it is the silence of eager anticipation for those who dwell in the heavenly places. Incense rises the vital prayers of the saints, both on earth and in heaven. When God brings judgment, whether the limited calamity of his releasing his controlling order on providence over creation, in the trumpets or in the unrestricted catastrophes of the end, he does so in response to the prayers of the saints. He does so to rescue and vindicate his suffering believers. When his controlling hand is pulled away, at last from creation's order and pattern, it unwinds spectacularly, fully revealing his wrathful glory. Only those sealed with his name, his property, greet the day with joy. And so the trumpets of the angels sound, anchored in the Old Testament foreshadowing of the conquest of Canaan, symbolized in Jericho's fall, and of the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, to its fulfillment now, which fills a third of the earth. As with the Egyptian plagues, they both punish hardness of heart, idolatry, and the persecution of God's people. In other words, these visions of revelation we have studied is showing us the ultimate exodus. But this time, it is not a mere nation that God judges, but rather it is the fact that God brings on the world, the entire world, these judgments. And so we saw that three trumpets sound, hail, fire, and blood fall on the land. A burning mountain is thrown into the sea, a burning star that falls on rivers and springs. Then the fourth trumpet sounds. There is a darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars. The plague of darkness, reflecting the darkness of the hard-hearted. Yet even now, God shows mercy. He calls a living creature like an eagle from the throne. He calls to the people who live for this world to repent in woe. Woe, woe. 
The first woe is pronounced, as we shall see, before the fifth, uh, after the fifth and before the sixth trumpet. The second woe is declared before the seventh trumpet sounds. And the third awaits the end. The last plagues, destruction of Babylon and the beasts and those who follow them. And indeed, the great dragon himself, the deceiver of the entire world. So the eagle warns the wicked to repent. If they refuse to repent, then they indeed would die for their own iniquity. But now we go back to the fifth trumpet sound and the sixth, our study this evening. The sealed people of God are safe, but the unsealed now are judged, not by creation's diminishment, as we've seen in the previous four, but in the horrifying judgment against their own person. Indeed, against their own psychology. In this most terrifying scene that John will have seen so far, the demonic creatures of the destroyer are loosed upon the hard-hearted remnant of the world. Now, as I pondered this text in the previous week, I thought to try and capture the intensity of the mental and spiritual terror the hard-hearted suffered. And I thought the most appropriate would be the horrific enemies described in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. They are the fell riders of Minas Morgul, the black riders, the, the Nazgul, these former kings who were once noble but are now like the living dead, riding huge dragon-like beasts. Now here's a description of their effect in the return of the king. Most unbearable, the Nazgul became, not less at each new cry. At length, even the stout-hearted would fling themselves to the ground as the hidden menace passed over them. Or they would stand, letting their weapons fall from nerveless hands, while into their minds a blackness came. And they thought no more of war, but only of hiding and of crawling and of death. Like Tolkien's Nazgul, chapter 9 presents to us a picture of ferocious creatures representing demonic spirits who bring a psychological torment on unbelievers. And so the fifth trumpet and the first 12 verses. A star fallen from heaven to the earth releases this scourge at the sounding of the fifth trumpet. An evil swarm emerges from the abyss, but can do so only by the purpose and permission of God on his throne in heaven. Because as you notice in the text, the fallen star is given the key of the bottomless pit. He doesn't have it as his possession. Rather, it is given to him. The sheer shaft of the abyss which indicates his royal authority to command and control its occupants. He gives it to the destroyer, but the ultimate authority rests with God himself. Who is this? This is the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. 
Now, John will later see him thrown from heaven down to earth in chapter 12. And for most of us, we may recall that we studied this event in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10, during our sermon series. There, our Savior saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It came at the time that our Savior is seizing back from the evil one his kingdom, one by Adam's disobedience, now wrested from Satan by our Savior's obedience, despite Satan's deceptions in the wilderness. And so the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, had sent out his disciples who were casting out demons in his name, and so Satan tumbles from heaven like lightning. And here we are in its vision. The fallen star opens the abyss, Dark smoke rises like from a great furnace to darken the sun and the air. And from the smoke emerges an army of locusts who the appearance is like horses prepared for battle and whose wings sound like chariots. You see, the fifth trumpet likewise remains in Exodus. Specifically, Exodus chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. There, the eighth plague on Egypt is a swarm of locusts, unparalleled in human history. It blackens the land. And as Exodus says, they ate all the plant in the land and all the fruit of the trees and the hail that had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And in our reading this evening, and perhaps you may recall from our study of the prophet Joel, He also foresaw a locust army, unparalleled unparalleled in history, summoned, why? By the trumpet of the day of the Lord. Fire and darkening sun accompany this army, Joel tells us, and its advance is like the charge of war horses. Its appearance, the sound of chariots clattering at top speed. This is how he describes them. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Notice how the lion's teeth feature here in John's description as well in verse 8. But notice the difference. How the goal of the plague here in John's vision is not field and grove in Egypt or Israel, as in Joel. Visually similar, how? In their relentlessness, in their comprehensiveness. But notice, the plague they bring is not agricultural, but spiritual. The fifth trumpet locust symbolized the demonic torment let loose upon the minds and souls of people who lack God's seal of his name on their thoughts and on their lives. Recall how we understood the seal in terms of the binding of hand and mind with God's law. So guiding our thoughts and our actions. Here, the unsealed have no such resource. So this plague And its power to destroy is fierce. 
But God has set a limit. Do you see that? No harm to vegetation or trees. They harm only those who do not have the seal of God. So the pain of their sting will not harm the people who have God's seal. Thus the affliction is not the same between believer and unbeliever, but rather the locust torment. They do not kill for five months. Now why five months? Well, a simple answer would be it's the life cycle of the locust. Now this torture seems worse than death because the relief they seek notice is in death. In other words, in suicide. That eludes them as death will flee from them. Do you see the irony that we see here? Notice first that Satan, as the angel of the abyss, releases these demonic hordes not to inflict the servants of God. Why? Because he cannot touch them. They have the seal of God. They're protected. But rather, notice, he sends them against his allies who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So we could say, as it were, the devil rewards, if that is the right word, his loyal followers with a cruel torture. And second, notice that the relief the torture think they will gain in death is denied them because the evil spirits that afflict their minds are forbidden to drive them to the point of despair, that terrible darkness that comes at the point that people will take their own lives. But within the limits given them, they still have significant power. They sting like scorpions. In other words, they wound with an intensity like fire. Their crowns and human faces signify intelligence and authority to carry out the mission. This is the first woe, the terror, the anxiety that torments human hearts and minds symbolize the work of this army of evil creatures. Now, what of the sixth trumpet? The sixth trumpet, which is the second woe, is humanity's last warning sound. When the trumpet rings out, a voice from the gold altar of God from which the prayers of unbelievers have risen, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, what's all this about? Now, we must go back and remember how in chapter 7, the four angels at the four corners must hold back the four winds until when? Until God's servants have been sealed. Now, he rescinds that command. The trumpet judgments have risen from one-third destruction of the creation to a mental and spiritual torture of unbelievers, and now it brings about the slaughter of one-third of the human population. Now, the reference to the binding of the Euphrates River would get John's first audience to snap up and take notice because the Euphrates was the ancient boundary between Rome and the Parthian Empire to the east. An empire noted for what? Its horsemen and their deadly archers that mounted them. Indeed, there was a no-man's land between the two empires 
that changed hands for over 500 years. So we can understand how the picture here of invasion from the east of the Euphrates echoes the fear of the Parthian Empire. But the horsemen that John describes are far more terrifying than the Parthians at their worst. And verse 17 reminds us that we're moving in the symbolic world of prophetic vision. Why? Because John says so. This is how I saw the horses, how? In my vision and those who rode them. So there is no geographical literalism here. It's not the invasion of the riders, but the horses that are so terrifyingly horrible. Verses 17 and 19, the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So this trumpet, number six, like the fifth, depicts the release of long pent-up forces upon the earth to torment and now even to kill the masses of their prey. So by what means can such demonic creatures kill? Well, in order to answer this question, we've got to do a bit of a close reading here. And it's really focused down in verse 19. How the power of the horses is where? Where is it located? In their mouths. Now, I would suggest that if we go back to the Old Testament, we will see a pattern of deception by false teachers resulting in idolatry. Indeed, it's a great theme of the Old Testament. And so here, the power is in their mouths. It's in the power of demonic deception. Part of the deception manifests itself through false teachers affirming some form of legitimacy to idolatry. But notice also how the power of the horses lies not only in their mouths, but also in their tails. Now, it doesn't mean that the horses literally have serpents as their tails, but rather, again, we're getting a major metaphor from the Old Testament scriptures. Notice how the first part of the verse comments generally on the similarity of the tails of these demonic creatures to what? To serpents. The second part continues the metaphor by saying that the harm inflicted by the head of the serpent, like tails, is lethal as the serpents that bite. So there's this piling on of image upon image to underline how the serpent harms by deception and falsehood. Now, that should not surprise us, because any reference to the serpent in the Old Testament inevitably brings you back where? the serpent in the garden who murdered by a lie. Surely you will not die. Did God really say? Remember how the Lord Jesus describes the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer 
from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now later, we'll see in the cycle of the bowls of God's wrath that the sixth is poured out in the same location on the Euphrates as John returns to this theme. Then he sees three unclean spirits, frog-like in appearance, emerge from the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. To what work? To deceive. To deceive the kings of the world and gather them for battle against God and his church. And so also then, these horses of death spread death through hellish deceit that pours out of their mouths hot, smoky, and stinking of sulfur and stings by the tail in the serpent's deceptions. When we consider how such deception would be made manifest among the unsealed, we can easily see the destructive power from the mouths of the false teachers who promote worship in anything and everything other than the, the true God. Indeed, we've seen in our study of the letters Jesus writes to the churches of Asia Minor that what? False teaching is a common theme to many of them. We saw in Luke how Jesus' defeat of demons during his ministry repeatedly revealed them to be cruel parasites dedicated to the destruction of the very individual they held imprisoned as their host. But notice, even as the demons now destroy their followers, now in despair and in conflict, the survivors of God's warning blast of judgment do not repent. And that's where we conclude. John repeats how the purpose of these plagues serve as warnings that press the unsealed further into condemnation. Verses 20 and 21. In fact, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. The torments of the tail of the scorpion and the horse did not kill all the wicked. But those who survived were nevertheless still affected by their deceptions. They did not repent. They continued to remain hardened toward God. More rather, we find out they worshiped demons, who, it must be noted, continued to deceive them. And they continue in their sinful lifestyle. They did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You see, these plagues will only have a redeeming effect on the remnant of compromisers within the church and idolaters outside who have been sealed beforehand and finally benefit from God's protection. There's a pattern here of the Exodus plagues, aren't there? Just like the death of the firstborn led to the decisive judgment of the Red Sea, so here the death of others as a warning sign does not induce repentance, but further hard-heartedness, just like we saw in Pharaoh. 
Send the chariots and bring them back. Rather, here it prepares for the final judgment of the incurably hardened at the seventh trumpet. And both God's sovereignty and his justice is on display. Because after many, many opportunities for spiritual reform, the immovably hardened of heart are to be judged at last. It reminds all of us, as believers, how opposition to our faithful witness of the Lord Jesus will continue to the end of history. There is no relief for us. Opposition will inevitably continue. But we should not lose heart because, as we see here in this vision and those that preceded it, it is all part of God's plan in which we trust. Now, did you notice one other thing? The Old Testament irony in terms of idol and idolater? The idolater becomes a copy of the idol they worship. Idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, and here it is, which cannot see or hear or walk. Notice, likewise, those who worship them also are not able to see or hear or walk spiritually. The idolater becomes as dead as the idol. In other words, the Old Testament picks up the point that such is the manner that a deceived person is anesthetized spiritually through idolatry. In other words, it becomes spiritually insensitive and ignorant. And so idolaters are punished by means of their own sin. And the sins here, murderers, sorceries, immorality, and thefts, are all associated with what? With idols and idolatry, both in the Old Testament and in the New. So in the end, my dear friends, there is indeed destruction in deception. The sting of a serpent comes first in the form of deception, so that after physical death, It leads unbelievers to its final effect, God's ultimate judgment, and the second spiritual death of eternal separation from him. So we could well ask ourselves, couldn't we? How seriously do we regard false teaching? Is it disagreeable? inconvenient, a human trait for which we may make excuse due to context, or is false teaching something empowered by another world we cannot see, by powerful spirits? Now, some of you have heard me say this. What is most dangerous to your soul? is to accept a teaching that is nearly right. Because a teaching that is nearly right appeals to our vanity and our laziness. Vanity, because we've accepted a teaching made subtle by an inner ring 
of influence and teachers. And laziness? Because we can't be bothered to put in the effort required to tease out the serpent's deception, to separate wheat from chaff. The question for the believer remains the same. Do we unswervingly go to God's word for protection, since it's the only source of truth against such threats? This is what John writes in his first letter. You are strong, and the word of God, what? Abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. But for that word to abide, it must be studied, and it takes effort to study it which, like the opposition to it, does not end until we see Jesus as he is. I'll go further and say this, my dear friends, to balk at such dedication to God's word ultimately holds our salvation cheap. If anything, these visions show us the danger of deception and that we do not stand on neutral ground. We must not be complacent. There's a very present spiritual reality unfolding in our midst. Because as the gospel is forgotten, what happens? Anxiety, fear, and despair take its place. And the fellow creatures of the destroyer are hard at work. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.